Well, good morning, church. I'm glad that you made it out this day that uh, it's a little cold and breezy, somebody told me, and uh, we're glad that you're here anyway. Uh, we're continuing on this morning in God's Word, and um, I'm going to be picking up on this series where Kent left off last, last week, and he's been talking about our identity in Christ. And so today, this is part four of discovering who we are in Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Colossians chapter three. We're going to be camping out there for a while this morning. And uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church because they needed some help. They needed some realignment on who they were in Christ. And I'm sure that we're not so different. And so we can learn from it as well. So this idea of identity is one that we are all impacted on throughout our lives. When we're in elementary school, uh, people often ask us, what do you want to be when you grow up? You guys remember getting asked that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, I know for me, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to fly an F-16 through the clouds and just to be awesome. And uh, well, that didn't happen for me. Uh, and I don't know about you, but you probably had maybe 10 or 15 things that you wanted to be when you grew up. And I'm just curious today, by a show of hands, who here is doing what they wanted to be in elementary school? Awesome, you guys, man, good for you. Uh, you chased your dreams and you got it. But for the rest of us, you know, we go through this thing of trying to figure out, well, who are we and who, what do we want to be? And this question isn't really a bad question because it causes the child to, to ask the question, who am I and what am I good at? But then when we get on to middle school, we're still on this quest to find out where we fit in amongst all the hormone-raging preens and te uh, teens. And we say things like, man, is this really what I want to do? And, and uh, uh, we, we become more aware of the clothes that we wear, the music we listen to, the kids we associate with. And it's all part of our image or who we want to portray ourselves to be. Middle school can be a hard time with lots of confusion about our identity because uh, it's kind of like wet concrete. just hasn't really set up yet, right? <clears throat> and so these years are filled with lots of trial and error, maybe embarrassing moments. I don't know if you can remember that, that phase of life for you, uh, but I can certainly uh, remember some uh, embarrassing moments. And then we get on to high school. High school is a little bit better because by then we've figured out, okay, I'm good at this or I like this. I know what my interests are. We might be athletic or maybe into computers or maybe we spend lots of time in the library studying and we're good at, at uh, academics. But here's the thing. The discovery process is still not over in high school. We want to be accepted by our peers and to be seen as adults, right? Every, every high school kid wants to be seen as a, a full-fledged adult. And people start asking you, what do you want to be when you... When you graduate from high school, what, what college are you going to go to? What career? Uh, what program? And all these questions. And I can still remember as a high school senior, people coming up to me and asking me that question. What are you going to be? What are you going to do? What school are you going to go to? And those are some big questions to wrestle with. I mean, good grief. What do I want to be for the next 30 years of my life? That's a big question to wrestle with. But so much of this is, is wrapped up in our identity because we're trying to figure out who we're going to be and what we're going to be doing. Uh, in our high school yearbook, um, one of the questions that we had to answer each of the seniors was, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Anybody else have a question like that in their yearbook? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And most of us said, well, I see myself having a family and some kids and a successful job. And the truth is, none of us really had any idea what we'd be doing in 10 years. But as, I, as we become adults, we still have this idea of identity wrapped up in our careers and how successful we have become or how successful our kids are. We find our identity in whether or not we are married or able to have kids, and these realities shape the way that we behave and inform what is important to us. And later in life, uh, we may even find our identity in what we have accomplished. And so maybe you're here today and you're retired or you're later on in life, and, 
and you look back and you say, I find my identity in what I did do or how much I was able to save for retirement. And the thing is, um, so much of our who is wrapped up in what we do. And so we find our identity in what we do. And the thing is, uh, you know, you've probably seen this when you met somebody new. When's the last time you, you ran into somebody? And it, it probably went something like this. Hello, my name is blank. Nice to meet you, blank. What do you do for a living? Right? That's always the question that follows. Or if you're retired, what did you do for a living? And so we get a large part of our identity from what we do. Our experiences and family background can have a big impact on identity as well. Now, I grew up on a farm here in North Dakota. I have no regrets about my childhood. I love the fact that I grew up in North Dakota on a farm. But here's the thing. I didn't realize that my childhood was much different than other people's until just a few years ago. I was in Oklahoma talking to some coworkers of mine, and we were sharing stories about our childhood. And uh, I was telling them all these stories, and they just kind of looked at me strange. And I was like, okay, what's the deal? You guys didn't uh, uh, snare gophers with fishing poles. You didn't uh, go sledding on car hoods. You didn't uh, make potato guns and shoot them. And uh, just all these random things that we did in, in North Dakota. I chased coyotes on the snowmobile. I mean, these were things that we did, thought they were normal. Come to find out, everybody else didn't live that way. But that's okay. Our family dynamics, our background, they play a part in who we are and who we see ourselves to be. If you're an only child, it's quite different than growing up with 10 siblings, right? The way that you do chores, the way that you have your household duties, maybe vacations, just your way of life is totally different depending on the number of siblings that you had. And so in addition to growing up in our environment, another thing that affects our identity is people's words. They feed into our identity. We are shaped by what other people have told us our whole lives. And so maybe you had abusive people in your life telling you that you were no good. Maybe you had people saying, man, you're not going to amount to anything. And the problem is with those words is that if we hear them long enough, we start to believe it. It becomes our reality. It becomes our truth. Or maybe you had people in your family that affirmed you, telling you you were smart or athletic or attractive or whatever. The point is, is that people's words shape who we believe ourselves to be. Sometimes it's hurtful and sometimes it can be good. But for better or worse, it shapes our reality. People's words have impact. That old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that is totally not true. James says that the power of life and death is in the tongue. And so we need to realize that words have impact on us. And so with all this talk about identity, we have to realize, again, that our experiences, our families, our peers, and the world around us are all trying to form us into who they want us to be. Even the devil is working to try to inform our identity because who we believe ourselves to be, who we believe ourselves to be, impacts everything else that we do. And so the first thing that we need to learn is we need to get our identity figured out. Your reality of who impacts everything you do. Your reality of who impacts everything you do. But we get this backwards and we find our who in what we do. We let our life's work or, our per or uh, you know, just what we love be our purpose, inform who we are. But God's way is different. He says, I made you and I have plans for your life. Everything we do in this life needs to flow from that reality. And in our culture today, we start with things like career and family background and experiences to decide who we are. And while those things can have an impact on our identity, the most important thing is who we are in Christ. And this is why Paul starts the chapter with a reminder to the Colossians of who they are spiritually. Before he could lay out a list of practical ways for them to live like Jesus, he had to remind them whose they were in Christ. 
that they were dead to their old life and they were made alive in Christ. And so we're going to take just the first few words of Colossians 3.1, and it says this, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, stop, right there. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are a new creation. Do you know that? That you are new. You are brand new. The first and most important thing about your reality is not your social status, not your bank account, not your family, not your career, your gender, or your age. Your most important reality is that you are new in Christ. You belong to him. And this is a huge reality that we need to understand. No matter what anyone else says about you, Jesus says, he is mine. She is mine. I bought her with my own blood. She belongs to me. He belongs to me. I chose to, to die that death on the cross so that you didn't have to die it. And so he did all of these things for us. And of all the things that shape our identity, our family background, experiences, friends, physical makeup, again, they're all secondary to who God says we are. And I think Satan wants us to believe that either lies about ourselves or to focus so much on what's wrong with us that we become discouraged and ultimately angry with God. If Satan can get you to think that you're no good, are you going to live in the victory of Christ? Are you going to live like a son or a daughter of the king? No, we're going to be helpless. We're going to be hopeless. We're going to be discouraged. We're going to be depressed. And our identity is skewed. It goes back to that. The truth is that God created you and cares deeply for you. And if you have doubts about who God made you to be and who values you, let's look at Psalm 139. This is just a few verses from it. This is another one of my favorite passages. And this is what David said. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. And so not only did God create you and make you just the way that he wanted you, he redeemed you, he bought you, because we were born into sin. We were born sinners, and then Christ redeemed us. He died the death on the cross so that we didn't have to. So you are loved, you are valued. No matter what anyone else has told you, you need to know that today, that you are loved by God. He loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to the cross for you. And the reason I'm spending so much time on this is because the rest of the passage in Colossians gives us the steps. It explains what to do, the practical applications to make. But here's the thing. If we just try to do better, if we just say, man, I'm just going to be better, I'm just going to be a better version of myself, that doesn't really work. We end up failing even more. But when we understand our true identity in Christ, then we're able to move forward because we understand who we are. Remember, our who impacts everything that we do. You are first and foremost a son or daughter of God. Let that truth sink in and become your reality. Let it be the first thing about your identity that shapes the way you think. And so how do we do that? Well, we look at the text. Let's see what Paul says in verses 1 through 4. Let's read that together. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. 
And so Paul tells us to set our minds and our hearts on things above, right? This means that we can not only be concerned about what's going on in our lives here and now, we can't just be focused right here, that we have to have our gaze, the gaze of our hearts and our minds set on eternity, on what is to come. Our worldview has to be greater than just right here, right now. 2019, Minot, North Dakota, my life, it's got to be greater than that. That this, this life that we're living right here is just a warm-up for eternity. Is that amazing or what? I mean, we're living for something that God's kingdom that will go on forever. And I don't even know if I can even wrap my, my brain around what that means. What is eternity? It's a long time and it's going to be awesome. I know that. My son Sam is uh, playing basketball right now at Jim Hill. He's in eighth grade and this is his first year of organized uh, basketball. He's played some rec stuff, but this is the first year of actually trying to do it through school. And so he's learning some fundamentals and we've been kind of working on some things. And as I watch him play, one of the things that I noticed was he gets the ball and he's pretty good at dribbling the ball, but he always looks right at the ball. You know, he's dribbling like this and he's going down the court. And the problem is, is there's often one of his teammates is down under the hoop on a fast break and he misses that opportunity for an easy two points. And so we've been out at the Y working on some fundamentals, some technique, and uh, I told him about these glasses. When I was in, in, in basketball, I don't remember, maybe sixth grade or something, we had to put on these glasses that were like below your eyeballs. Anybody ever have an experience with it? Yeah. And so you had to put these on and then dribble the ball around, and the thing is, is you couldn't look down. It forced you to look up. And I was trying to help Sam get that, that you need to look down the court so you see what's happening, because if you're looking right at the ball, you're going to miss everything else that's going on. And I think there's an application to make here for us too. Because as Christians, sometimes we get so busy dribbling our ball, looking at our little stuff right here that we forget to see what God is doing and that God is forever preparing us for eternity. And there are decisions that we're making now have an impact for the rest of eternity. And so that's why Paul is saying, set your minds and your hearts on things above because there's more than just this life. You are a citizen of heaven. Paul tells the Colossians that they have died and that they are now hidden with Christ in God. And this is for us too. We died to our old sin nature and we're made new. God makes us new in Christ. And that's really a picture of baptism. We've been baptized with Christ, raised to new life. Our sins have been washed away. We're purified and clean. So we understand that we have this identity in Christ, right? You say, I get it. You've been hammering on it. Identity in Christ. Got it. So now what? The next thing we need to do is we need to let our behaviors follow our identity. Don't live like you used to live. Embrace your new life in Christ. And so when we understand who we are in Christ and we let the gaze of our hearts and minds be on eternity, we are still responsible for how we live. When we come to faith in Jesus, do we just automatically start living like Christ? Please nobody answer yes, (laughs) because that's not true. When we come to Christ, we're still a mess, right? And God is working in us day by day, causing us to grow and become like Jesus. It's a process we call sanctification, right? And it's something that we need to be participants in. We don't just automatically get there. We have to participate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And what I love about the next verses in Colossians 3 is that Paul gives us a list of things that are pretty black and white. So let's let's look back at the text, verse 5, and we're going to read 5 through 10. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world, 
Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. And so before coming to Christ, we're stuck in sin. It's the old self. We're being called to live a new way. Paul says, put to death. He doesn't say, man, if you can, try not to to be angry. If it's convenient, don't lust. If you can get around to it, you know, don't lie to people, right? He says, put to death the old self. Because here's the thing. The old self does not want to be put to death. The old self wants to live on. The old self likes itself. And so we have to put it to death, like Paul says. So what happens, though, is sometimes we tend to live in the past. We're creatures of habits, and old habits can be hard to break. And so if, you, if we're used to outbursts of anger or when someone cuts us off in traffic, it can be, can be hard to break that habit. Or if we're caught up in looking at porn or lusting after material things, it can be hard to break out of those things because we've been conditioned, our minds have been conditioned for that. But remember what God says about you. You are a new creation. God is doing his part in you. Our job is to partner with him in that work, in that new life. And the goal is not to be just a better Christian, to clean up our behavior, but the goal is to be transformed from our heart, from the inside out, and so that our actions follow where our identity is at. And I just want to say this too, that when we understand our identity in Christ, it changes the way that we receive grace. Because when we mess up, we know that God loves us. He is our heavenly father. We come to him, right? We can receive his grace. We can walk in his grace. He's not going to hold it against us. I mean, just as a child comes to their parent and says, forgive me, I sinned, I messed up, I broke this lamp, or I smashed this window. Well, I'm disappointed, but I forgive you. God has that same kind of love, an even better love for us. So if we have sin that we need to overcome, how do we do that? How do we overcome sin? Let's make this real practical. The first thing is that we have to be honest with God. It starts with being honest with God. Don't deny your sin. Own it and ask for forgiveness. Just say, God, I messed up. I'm sorry. Forgive me. The second thing we do is we put ourselves in situations that we can reduce temptations. And so if you struggle with a certain sin, don't put yourself in a situation where you're just going to fall right back into it. Be wise. Surround yourself with people that can hold you accountable. Maybe it's somebody in your small group or a, you know, a spouse or a good friend, somebody that can be that accountability in your life so that we don't fall into temptation. Because temptation is not the same thing as sin. Jesus was tempted, right, without sin. Temptation is, it comes to us and then we have a choice. Sin is a choice. And so if we choose to enter into that sin... Now we're in the wrong. But if we're tempted and we can resist that temptation, then we're we're living like Christ. The third thing that we can do is we can resist sin by letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us. And I'm going to jump ahead in our text for just a minute. And so we're going to look down at verse 16 if you're still open in that passage. Let's look at 16. Let the message of Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And what I love what he says here, Paul Paul says to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we admonish one another. 
And we're to do it with worship music. We meditate on scripture and worship. And as I dug into this verse, I wondered why Paul didn't just say, man, preach sermons, read the scripture, and then just stop there. He went on. He said to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another with thankfulness in your hearts. What is the significance of this? And as I thought about it and looked at it, if you go back to verse 1 where we started, what did Paul say? He said to set your minds and hearts on things above, right? Music affects our heart. And when it is paired with truth, biblical truth, it sets our minds where they need to be. And so worship is a great way for us to get our hearts and minds back to where they need to be. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a worship service. I didn't feel like worshiping. Confession of a worship pastor, you know. But we come in and we make a choice and we say, God, I'm here for you. I'm here to lay my heart before you. And what happens is we're realigned and our hearts and minds are now fixed on the eternal God, on his kingdom. It gets all the focus off of us, which is not where it's supposed to be, right? We get, we get wrong sometimes and we get so focused on the inner person of who we are and we're so worried about our problems and we shrink God down and we forget that he is the creator of the universe, the God who is worthy of our worship. And so it, it seems like a kind of a crazy uh, idea here, but I'm just going to say, worship God. Give your sin to him and worship him and see what he does through it. Whether you're in your car, whether you're at home, whether you're at church, turn that into worship. So Paul doesn't just give us a list of don'ts. He also paints a clear picture of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. He shows us how we're to obey Christ and live in authentic community with one another. So back to the text. We're going to read 12 through 15. Since God chose you to be the holy people that he loves, again, that's identity, right? Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, and so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you were called to live in peace and always be thankful. Man, what a dynamic picture of what the church could be. That was an awesome description of all the things that are good in a Christian. I mean, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love, unity. Sign me up for that. Amen? Anybody else want to be around people like that? in your home, in your workplace. I mean, how different would life be if everybody acted with those character traits? But here's the reality. Most people don't. And even in church, a lot of times we don't. And you've probably got stories. I have my own stories. I mean, I've been cut off in traffic, flipped off by someone with a Jesus fish in the back of their car, (laughs) right? We've probably all have experienced somebody who claims to be a Christian and yet lives just like the world, sometimes worse than the world, because they're proclaiming to be a Christ follower. And so what do we do about this? And again, I think it goes back to understanding our identity in Christ and then letting that flow into who we are. And so here's the thing. We want our identity to be identifiable. We want our identity to be identifiable. Can people tell you are a Christian because of these character, character traits? Do they see these things in you? When they think of you, do they list, man, compassion, humility, patience, unity, love? Are those the things they use to describe you? Or do they use 
maybe slightly more colorful words to describe you. Because our identity shows up in the way that we act. Or maybe the way that we see ourselves more. So why does Paul care if we live right? If we're saved and we know Jesus, isn't that enough? The answer is no, it's not enough. We're not just saved and then, yeah, hey, see you, Jesus, in eternity. We'll, we'll get there when my life is over. He wants you to make a difference in this world right now. He puts you here to make a difference. And so while as I studied this passage and I ended in, in 17, I couldn't help but look ahead just a little bit farther because I want you to see this. It, it's really a kind of a, maybe an overview, a summary of, of why Paul is saying all this. And so jump down to verse 23, and we're going to read 23 and 24. And he says, Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master you are serving is Christ. So we are to work hard. Again, our identity is most important, but God still wants us to do things. He wants us to make a difference in the world around us. And so work hard at your career. Be the best at your job that you can be for his glory because you work for him. If you're a stay-at-home mom, be the best stay-at-home mom that you can be. If you're a grandma, be the best grandma that you can be. If you're a grandpa, whatever, whatever God has you doing in life, be the best that you can be for his glory because he is our master and we belong to him. But here's the thing. Don't ever forget that you are not your own. You belong to Christ. You belong to God. He died for you. And that you're, you're put on this planet at this time to make a difference. You're not put here just to, to consume and to be all about you and to live life and, and just to, you know, grab it all and, and get all you can while you can. We're here to make a difference at this point in time. And so stop dabbling in sin. Stop messing around and put on those virtues that we're supposed to put on that Paul tells us about. Let God use you to touch people around you. This is his will for your life to be living the life God called you to live, to share his love with your family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers, and to make his church a force to be reckoned with. God calls us to live different from the world because we are different than the world. God calls us to live our identity, for our identity to be identifiable. And when we understand who we are in Christ, it changes everything. You just don't know how God might use you to impact someone else's life. I'm gonna share a story with you. There's a person, his name is Fred Craddock, and he's a lecturer at Phillips Theological Seminary. He tells of a time he was on vacation in Tennessee. Him and his wife were having dinner at a restaurant when an old man started talking to them, asking how they were doing and if they were enjoying their vacation. When the old man asked Fred what he did for a living, Fred saw the chance to get rid of him. He said, I'm a preacher. A preacher, that's great. Let me tell you a story about a preacher, the old man said as he sat down at the table, started to speak. As he did, Fred's annoyance was changed to one of profound humility. The old man explained that he was born without knowing who his father was, a source of great shame in a small town in the early 20th century. One day, a new preacher came to the, to the local church. The old man explained that as a youngster, he had never gone to church before, but one Sunday decided to go along and hear the new pastor preach. He was good. The illegitimate boy went back again and then again. In fact, he started attending just about every week, but his shame went with him. This poor little boy would always arrive late and leave early in order to, be, uh, to avoid talking to anyone. 
But one Sunday, he got so caught up in the sermon that he forgot to leave. And before he knew it, the service was over and the aisles were filling. He rushed to get past people and out the door, but as he did, he felt a heavy hand on his shoulder. He turned around to see the preacher, a big, tall man, looking down at him and asking, What's your name, boy? Whose son are you? The little boy died inside. The very thing that he wanted to avoid was now here. But before he could say anything, the preacher said, I know who you are. I know who your family is. I see the family resemblance. Why, you're the son of You're the son of God. The old man sitting at Fred Craddock's table said, You know, mister, those words changed my life. And with that, he got up and left. When the waitress came over and said to Fred Craddock and his wife, Do you know who that was? No, they replied. That was Ben Hooper, the two-term governor of Tennessee. See, understanding identity can be pivotal in our relationship with God and on the impact that he can make on us with other people. So understanding who we are in Christ makes all the difference. And what about you today? Are you living with a broken view of your identity? Do you need to be realigned and reminded of who you are in Christ? The the, The Colossian church did. I think we do too. We need to remember that we are made new in Christ, that we are new creations set on this earth for his glory and to do his will. And so no matter who you've been in the past, God is willing to embrace you through grace. God is redeeming our identity. Bad things from your childhood or previous marriage or some traumatic experience does not define you. God loves you and made you. He cares enough about you, cared enough about you to send his son Jesus to the cross to die in your place so that we could live, right? We've been made sons and daughters of God. So let your identity in Christ be the most important reality about you. Let your gaze always be fixed on the kingdom. Keep your minds and your hearts set on the realities of heaven. Don't forget how short this life is. Make it count. And let your identity in Christ be identifiable to others because you bear witness to the one that you love and worship. Your life bears witness. Let your identity be identifiable. And let the Holy Spirit transform you into the person that God wants you to be.